Renewable energy offers many benefits to the environment and its workforce, but while these are often great jobs, they can also be dangerous. Renewable energy workers are exposed to hazards that can result in fatalities and serious injuries. Many incidents involving falls, severe burns from electrical shocks and fires, and crushing injuries have been reported to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Our guest in this episode, Troy Ryan, is the Director of Operations for Leeward Renewable Energy, an industry leader in North America. Prior to joining the private sector, Ryan served in the U.S. Marine Corps. His experience in these two seemingly different yet similarly high-risk industries is the impetus for this interview. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and you're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Troy, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Patty. So you presently serve as the Director of Operations for Leeward Renewable Energy. Can you please tell us a little bit about Leeward and what your role as Director of Operations entails? Sure. So uh, Leeward Energy, it's a renewable energy company based out of Dallas, Texas. And we have ownership in 19 wind farms spread across the U.S., all the way from New Jersey to uh, California. Uh, my role as Director of Operations is to support the field and help to solve issues across our wind turbine fleet. The tasks range from safety, everything day-to-day, problem-solving, planning and budgeting, training, and just being ready to tackle what each day hands you. We have a lot of contractors that work for us, so I spend a lot of the time working with those contractors and try to make sure everything's getting done right across our sites. Great. And as I mentioned, prior to entering the private energy sector, you served in the USMC from 1989 to 1999. What specifically did you do in the USMC? Um, So I actually got out on St. Patrick's Day of 1998, and Mm -hmm. I was a 7242 air support operations operator. I was mostly assigned to the Tactical Air Command Center out of uh, Okinawa and Cherry Point, North Carolina. Uh, My last duty station was out in 29 Palms, California, and then I ended up staying in 29 Palms when I got out. Can you describe that job for people who might not know? So 7242, it was the uh, interface between the ground troops and the air resources that were available. So uh, it's uh, JTARs, ASRs, and medevacs. So it's uh, airstrikes, resupplies, and then uh, just emergencies if anybody got hurt. Uh, so it was like in a, I kind of look at it like an enhanced 911 where you're assigning the appropriate resources to the appropriate needs in the field and help, helping, to, helping them out. So um, I also had a uh, secondary MOS, uh, Marine Corps Instructor Water Survival, where mm-hmm. I got my uh, North Carolina and National EMT certifications while volunteering for the Havelock Fire Department. Excellent. And then how did you wind up in the energy industry? My father, when I was growing up, he was a millwright for General Motors, and he was laid off quite frequently. Um, one of the things he always pointed out is that the electricians were never getting laid off. Um, one of the things he always told me was to get into electricity, and I'd never go hungry. So when I saw the opportunity to get into wind energy, I was just looking to get my foot into the door and then build my skill sets from there. I never actually planned on staying in it. When I got into it, I actually got into it at the lowest level, which was a mechanic one out in Palm Springs, California, and then I worked my way up through the ranks, and then I never did leave, and here I am 20 years later. (laughs) Isn't that how it works? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did your service as a Marine influence or shape the manner in which you lead in the private industry? Without a doubt. I honestly believe the Marine Corps is one of the best business training opportunities available. Um, There's a lot of similarities 
with what I do day to day now from what I did when I was in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably one of the uh, the best business books out there is the USMC Warfighting, the MCDP one. Mm-hmm. And uh, mine's dog-eared, and I try to read it at least every six months and refresh my memory on uh, best practices. Do you have any recommended reading that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, my goodness. Yep. So, I mean, it, the Boyd book is probably one of the best ones out there. By Robert um, Corum? Yep. That is a, that's a life changer because it's, you know, are you, are you going to pay the, play the politics game and just get somewhere? Or are you going to make a difference? And I, I think it's more important to make things better and make a difference. Um, another thing you'll kind of see in, in industry is, you know, you can get to the top really super fast if you want to, but you're going to burn a lot of bridges and you're not going to be there very long when you get there. So it's more important to work your way up through the ranks, doing things the right way. And then when you get there, you're going to stay there. And then you're going to, you're, you're going to keep, you should keep moving forward. I mean, uh, if the business is truly focused on that bottom line, uh, the people that are good at what they, what they do are going to be the ones that should rise to the top. You know, getting your foot in the door isn't usually that good of pay. It's all right pay. But over time, um, what's nice about most places in the industry is you are rewarded based off of what you do. So if you're meeting all your objectives and your uh, key performance indicators, that that usually turns around into a bonus. You've spent your entire professional life, obviously, we've just been talking about it, working and leading in two high-risk industries, the military and the energy industry, for more than two decades now. What traits and attributes do you value most in leaders? What I appreciate the most is that they're accessible with a proper mission focus and uh, able to make sound and timely decisions. Um, There's a a lot of times you need solutions quickly. Um, They're outside of of my authority. So when I can, when I call my boss and he picks the phone up at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, you got a real boss. That's a real operator that's uh, there to support you. I think my goal is I would, I want to be a good boss. So what I want to do is continually develop myself and learn how to be a better leader because I think it's when you think you're really good at it, you're probably not. People are just so much more productive when they're, when they enjoy coming to work and they enjoy who they're working for. And then what traits and attributes do you value most in your employees? I understand that most technicians work remotely and in a distributed fashion. What sort of relationship does this require to optimize performance? Integrity is by far the most important thing because they are working alone or just with another person all day long. And if they decide not to work, um, it takes a while to figure out that they're not actually doing their job. So the integrity and initiative with a desire to be the best at what they do is really the best employees. It, it takes a, a lot of time to learn the job too. So when they come in, they really don't know, they really don't know a lot, even if they come out of a school. So we assign, try to assign them to the uh, better technicians to get the, the best possible training out the gate so they know how to do it the right way. Got it. For those who don't know, can you describe the operational environment where your technicians work? I'll just kind of start off with, you know, it's it's more of a lifestyle than what it is, like an actual job, just because of what it requires. Um, you're, you start your day uh, basically climbing 263 foot straight up a ladder. We do have some towers now that are actually taller than that. 
but uh, that's that's kind of a rough way to start it. Um, what you find over time is the more you climb, the more your body kind of craves it. So if you take a week off, you're just kind of itching to get on a ladder and start climbing somewhere. Um, and then when they get up there, they're literally within inches of mechanical and electrical hazards all day long and obviously fall hazards. So um, the skill sets we ask these people to have, they're extremely vast. Um, it's mechanical, electrical. You know, they're more or less an industrial athlete the way they start the day. They got to understand computers, and occasionally they work on some of the space-age frequency converters. Uh, I would say uh, overall training is probably the largest challenge. And like I said earlier, it takes uh, years to learn all the avail- uh, variabilities of the complex systems and then actually be good at it. If, if they do come out of a school, what you'll find is is that it, after about two to three years, they're a lot further developed than someone who came off of the streets because they have a good uh, educational foundation. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about training, but what are some other challenges that technicians have to navigate in the operational environment? One of the largest and more dangerous challenges is bad weather because it uh, greatly ri- raises the risk. Um, so when you have ice on blades in the wintertime, that's when it gets really tough. Uh, when you add, you know, everything's in metric system out there. So it's about 20 degrees Celsius or negative four degrees Fahrenheit. That's kind of your work cutoff. But when you're out there for eight to 10 hours at negative four degrees Fahrenheit, it does get extremely cold. And it's really, it's a lot harder to maintain focus when you're dealing with those variables. Mm-hmm. So when I first got into the industry, we didn't have very many injuries, but it wasn't that complex. Whereas now it's like everybody's like a lot smarter than than what they were when I started, Mm -hmm. Uh, just because over the years and the lessons learned, but the job is a lot more complex. So we actually see more more injuries than what we saw Mm -hmm. way, you know, 20 years ago. So because you're trying to figure it out. And then the other thing is, is like, like, uh, you know, the millennial guys. They actually, once you get it, no matter who you have, if you train them right, they're always going to be just fine, no matter what generation they are. I mean, so that's that's one of the interesting points that that comes up. It's it's like don't complain about it, fix it, you know. And it it doesn't matter. I mean, our probably one of our biggest one of the things that's kind of holding the industry back right now is your uh, the old timer guys, the guys that know all the shortcuts. Whereas if these younger generation coming in, you teach them how to do it right, they're actually in two, you know, come out of a two-year school, they're in the field for two years, and they're two to three times better than someone with 10 to 15 years experience mm-hmm. because they're learning to do it the right way, and they're actually solving the problem. They're not putting a Band-Aid on it, and the turbine falls out two weeks later. Right. So that's, that's what's beneficial for us right now. Having solution-oriented people. Beneficial, and that's all you really have to do is, you know, most of the time people don't get the results they desire because they're not communicating what it is that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. What sorts of operations or evolutions do your technicians conduct on a regular basis? So it varies. I would say the bulk of the work that we want everybody to do is preventative work, which is just basically maintenance. And then depending on your turbine type, that's not always the case because some run better than others. So every day you kind of wake up. I'm a big time planner. Well, what I've had, what I've done quite frequently is I'll plan out the entire week. I show up in the morning, rip the plan in half, throw it in the trash and start all over again. And then literally 45 minutes after that, I'm starting all over again. Mm -hmm. So it's, 
a lot of repairs, uh, sometimes crane work when you have uh, major component failures and you lose uh, like a gearbox or a generator. Uh, it's That gets a little bit hairier because if you're just on a site doing normal operations and you're not used to doing that all the time, that's when it it's a lot of fun because it's, it's scary, but it's uh, it's something you got to be able to do when you can't get outside resources to come in and help you out. Mm-hmm. I think you've mentioned several already, but uh, can you explain the types of evolutions where technicians assume the highest risk? This job is technically the safest job I've ever had if you if you just look at it from a fundamental perspective, but it, it has a lot more risk. So it's just based, I'd say the biggest risk is electricity and working at heights. Mm-hmm. So it really only becomes a problem when people start to operate outside of their procedures and they're not creating an electrically safe work conditioning, condition and then doing their lockout takeout properly. That's when you run into the shock arc and blast effects of a electrical type accident. So when we speak about high-risk professions, people commonly think of the military, law enforcement, and the fire service. But it's fair to say that you serve as a leader in an industry where the consequences of workplace mishaps are equally severe, even though you just mentioned this is one of the safest environments that you've worked in. What are the organizational or industry-level consequences of a mishap in your industry? Yeah, I would say our main objective is that no one gets hurt and everyone goes home safe. And then anytime somebody does get injured and they miss work, it really hurts everybody because then it, it's, you know, we're already kind of shorthanded all the time anyway, just like everybody else in the country. But being down a person really affects the overall day to day. But probably one of the worst things that happened was in Europe in October of 2013, where a fire had started in the back of a turbine and uh, two of the technicians couldn't get out. You can find it on the internet and you can see them on the nose cone. Um, one of them jumped and then the other person was recovered up tower and neither of them made it. Mm. Um, since that incident, what our company's required is that everybody have a self rescue bag on them all the time. So at any time, if something goes down, you, you, uh, tie off to an anchor point, hook off to yourself and then down you go. So it's too bad. Something bad had to happen to get to that point. But, uh, that's, that's how it affected the industry. And that's the case in most wind companies now. You have to have a self-rescue bag. What are the risks associated with individual human performance in your industry, physical, emotional, anything like that? Yeah, that's where it's kind of tough to understand both the mental and physical limitations of people because by the end of the week, you're you're exhausted in both aspects. Um, you know, there's only so many climbs you can do in a day, so many you can do in a week, so many you can do in a month, year, or a lifetime. So, the overall goal is to increase the successes of the technicians to help minimize the workload. Um, yet one of the things we're struggling with in the industry is it's really fast growth. There's there's a lack of experience out there. You know, we got a lot of procedures too, but the procedures don't always cover all the variables. And uh, time on task usually leads to better observation skills. That helps these guys catch this, the, these uh, technicians catch the smaller things that are usually causing the problems. And we'll get the turbine back online. You have experience across various industries. How much attention has been given to the development of soft skills or transferable skills? I'm glad you touched on that because that, you know, coming out of the Marine Corps, I keep trying to talk my boss into letting me go to charm school. He hasn't, he hasn't told me I could go yet, (laughs) but it's, it's, it is different than the military because I, 
you know, I would say that the easier aspect about military leadership is if, you, if your back's against the wall, you can start making people work during their time off, which is really effective. In the civilian world, when you make people work during their time off, you got to pay them time and a half. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really not beneficial. It's more of a reward. So that's where you got to, you know, you, you, you build that team. And, and what, what's, what's super awesome is that when you get a group of technicians, you show up at a site that's kind of coming off the hinges. Uh, you take the people that are there and you start investing in their future and their careers and you help them start building their resumes. Um, I've, that's probably the best part about this job is I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of awesome, super talented people. You know, I'm surprised that NASA's not coming in looking for some of these wind techs to fly on the space shuttle just in case something goes wrong because there's not much that they can't fix. Mm. We talked a lot about the dangers of renewable energy work, but what are some of the benefits of it? It's really hard, but it's really fun. And it's one of those things where it's like when when times are tough and you just kind of got to remind yourself, it's like, well, this... This is what I really enjoy, though, is I really enjoy it when it gets hard. So it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's not easy. It's, it's not like you can just come to work and collect a paycheck. You, you have to contribute. There's no way you can get around it because it, it, the turbine's either going to run or it's not going to run or the site's going to be online or it's not going to be online. So it, there's, there's no way to kind of uh, bluff your way through it or fake it. Mm-hmm. So it's... That's what's that's what I enjoy about it. But you know, like I said earlier, with the with the people, the people are awesome. Um, what it takes is it's it's, it's kind of like what you hear with military units, like your partner. You might not like your partner that much, but when you're working together all day long, it, you're always going to look out for each other, and you're always going to take care of each other. And over time, you get to the point where you're not even talking. I know what my partner's going to do. My partner knows what I'm going to do, and uh, uh, that's really fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is culturally, I like the industry just because it's. It seems like everywhere I go, to different wind energy conferences, it's 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 like a big family. So, under your leadership as director of operations, Leeward Energy has begun to embrace human performance. How were you introduced to the field of human performance? Okay, so I was first introduced in human performance. It was early in 2017. Uh, it was our American Wind Energy Association Annual Operations Maintenance and Safety Conference in San Diego. And uh, one of the uh, presentations I sat in, it was just phenomenal. I mean, it was just lots of good tips on human elements and how to prevent failures. And then at the end of the speech, the only source for the entire presentation was the Department of Energy Human Performance Improvement Handbooks, Volume 1 and 2. Um, those are free to download off the internet, and that's how I got started. Um, shortly after that, I heard Jason Bresler on a podcast discussing the Leadership Under Fire organization and was able to convince our leadership to uh, be able to take a group of folks to the Love Conference in Ohio in 2017. For anybody listening to this episode who might not know who Jason Bresler is or the story of him founding Leadership Under Fire, you can go back and listen to a previous podcast, episode number five. So, Troy, what do you think are the greatest benefits of optimizing human performance in a more systematic fashion for your company and industry? So I think, you know, like I said earlier, the, the industry is just growing so fast and there's a large demand for skills. Um, and it's the more successful these people are, the more successful our businesses are. And, and the human performance is really kind of fine-tuning all of those processes and, and 
being better at what you do, making it a safer environment mm-hmm. that's also more effective and more adaptable. So, you know, I, I, I'm kind of trying to turn myself into a human performance student and uh, trying to gather as much information as I can so we can be, become more effective. What kind of accelerant do you think it provides in your industry by focusing on human performance? When you understand better how the human mind functions, you're going to be better at uh, utilizing it and then and then utilizing it with the skill sets of your people. So, I mean, I think that's invaluable in and of itself is just knowing what's plausible and what's not plausible within the realm of reality and uh, mental and physical limitations. Because, you know, one of the, one of the things is like, we've had days where I think the most towers I climbed in a day was six. We've had days where we've had guys go out and climb like eight, nine or 10 towers when, uh, something went wrong, something was wired wrong across all the towers and they're all down and you want to get them back up as quick as you can. And then you, you got to understand, like, if you put forth that much effort in one day, you're going to need some downtime to recover from that the, the next few days. And then just basically rewarding people for the hard work that they're doing and what they're doing for you is important too. Many of our optimizing human performance guests to date work in the public sector, but you obviously worked in the private sector where the bottom line commands a great deal of attention from management and investors. How do you think optimizing human performance with an improved understanding of human factors can help a company's bottom line? So one of the things I've noticed is there's a difference between managers and leaders. And if you got the right leadership and people are really enjoying coming to work and enjoying working, it's a real game changer. I, I think understanding those human factors, is, it's going to reduce your errors. It's going to increase the quality and makes for a more resilient and adaptable business because our one critical factor is those technicians. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, we really can't expect that the way we've always done it, that it's always going to keep working. And each site's different. Each turbine platform's different. Each location and grid is somewhat different. So we really have to be adaptable and then have tools available to make us make us better at what we do. The next question I'm going to ask is really like the million-dollar question, right? So how do you think that an understanding of human factors and performance and high-risk endeavors can be integrated into a company's business model? I kind of see human performance as like the holy grail for this industry. I mean, it's it, the, the main thing we got to remember is, is if we focus on the basics and we're, we're keeping our priorities in the right order, we're going to have a lot greater successes. As, as we overcomplicate it and overthink it, that's when, when we start to see uh, delays in, in uh, productivity and, and they really end up slowing us down in the long run. You've been attending Leadership Under Fire, human performance conferences and summits with other members of Leeward Energy for several years now. And that's actually where we met earlier this year in March in Annapolis, Maryland. Yep. And I appreciated the conversation with you because you were able to take a lot of the concepts and ideas that were being discussed there and apply it to yourself and your industry what leadership under fire optimizing human performance themes or topics resonate with you the most? So this is actually a pretty tough question because, uh, you know, in 2017 at the first one, Dr. Fader's uh, goals and objectives presentation was really helped explain a lot of the problems we were seeing on, our, on some of our projects. We were worrying about the wrong things in the wrong order. And if you want high turbine performance, 
that really can't be a goal that has to be your objective and then you're like then you want to focus on those fundamentals to get you to your objectives and those goals need to be quality on time maintenance completions along with uh, successful repairs on the turbine and then actually fixing what made it go wrong versus just swapping a part that failed you got to figure out what went wrong with it that's been the one that resonated with me the most excellent out of those events which contributor has resonated with you the most so that's another tough one so i always look forward to uh jimmy lopez's training sessions um he's uh pretty straightforward with what he's got to say and uh if you want to be good you definitely want to listen to what he's putting out there last year in 2018 uh joe Schweitzer's uh moral obligation was another really good one i enjoyed uh for this year brennan collie's individual resilience i mean that that's a that's a tough story and uh i appreciated him getting up there and sharing that with everybody and then the uh the warrant officer uh, CWO5, uh, James Rousseau's organizational resilience and lethal environments was uh, also very interesting. And it, it was even applicable to like what, what we do in a day-to-day environment. Are there any human performance principles or practices in particular that you and those who work for you in Leeward have adopted and apply to daily operations? Um, so what's good is they do, they do get incorporated one way or another. So, you know, everybody that we take to the conference, uh, they're on various committees within our, our company where they take what they learn and they contribute that. And then it ends up in our day-to-day operations. Um, I'd say the biggest thing is error minimization, uh, because the, uh, worst accidents usually happen when procedures aren't followed. What do you view as being the weakest link in human performance in your industry or an area that presents the greatest opportunity for improvement perhaps? Um, so, you know, having start up, started at the bottom and then worked my way up to, through the uh, ranks there, I, the weakest link is, is leadership. Um, and it's basically keeping the priorities in the proper order. Uh, I'd say the number one priority as a leader is to take care of your people and the mission, you know, while equipping them to be the best that they can be. Um, we also need to make sure we're teachers and continually driving the improvement while ensuring future successes with skill development and then succession planning with our technicians. Because the really good ones, what happens is they, uh, they're going to move on, and then you want the people to below them to come in and fill their shoes. And it's, it's just a constant circle that's ongoing. So if you're not preparing for that inevitable, you will be left with a bunch of people that uh, have a long way to go in the job. Does risk management and safety efforts in your industry often focus on the technical and neglect human factors, would you say? I would say that would be the case when you're dealing with more of a manager than a leader. Mm-hmm. And it's there, there's just so many variables. So what I try to do is uh, you, every, it's kind of like a football team. You know, some guys are strong electrically. Some guys are str- some folks are strong mechanically. And then put the right person on the right turbine fault for the best success. And then what you're going to do is take someone who is a little bit weaker in that area, pair them up so that person can can uh, pick up some of that while they're there. Um, the other thing I've, I've learned that's extremely helpful is kind of switching people around frequently. And then those people where no matter where they go, good things happen. Those are the people that actually end up becoming like the crew leads and the lead the leads event on the project eventually. Mm-hmm. Are there other areas of your industry that could benefit from further human factors exploration and research to enhance human performance? Um, I think so because I think uh, 
you know, we've got lots of different departments within the company. And the thing about all these departments is every department has an operational aspect because there's, there's a need for something to get done in a sound and timely fashion. It just can't be hanging out there forever. And then meanwhile, you have to be able to accept all the new requests as they're coming in for assistance. So I think, I think that's where it would help the most getting everybody more in tune with the real time mission and helping to solve those problems. If, if it takes you three years to solve an engineering problem and the li- turbine life is 30 years, well, it shouldn't take 10% of the life of the machine mm-hmm. to solve the problem. That's an interesting perspective. Your son, Joshua, joined you in attendance at this year's Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit in Annapolis, Maryland. He is an active duty Army officer. I'm sure that you're incredibly proud of his service and willingness to serve, particularly given that our nation remains at war. Do you consider the moral aspects of leadership and performance? And if so, do you share these considerations with your son or try to just lead by example? We do. He's, uh, you know, he was born on a Marine base, so I'd like to think that kind of helped get him to where he is today. But, you know, the better equipped you are with the right knowledge and the skills, you know, the more successful you're going to be if you're motivated enough to use it. Um, you know, when he was in high school, he basically started reading the, uh, like the Marine Corps, uh, reading list. Mm -hmm. So he was reading stuff that I was 18, 19, 20 years old. He's reading it when he was in his uh, teens. So, uh, but overall my goal is, uh, my goal is to help anyone coming up through the ranks to learn from my mistakes and help to make it better. Um, one thing Josh and I do is we challenge each other quite frequently and I wish I could have attended something like this when I was his age. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing I like about leadership under fire is if you want to be awesome, you need to hang around with awesome people. And there's a lot of awesome people there. So uh, I really enjoy those conferences. For those who don't have experience across various industries, what is it about the leadership under fire endeavor that you would like to communicate with them? And it, this is something that you and I talked about a little bit when we met in Annapolis, the fact that you were able to marry a lot of the concepts and ideas with application across various fields. What I like about the leadership under fire is it kind of is more of that, that soft skill aspect of it. And it's, 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 there's so many things that are important to people and people want to be the best at what they do. And I think a lot of times what they lack is, is just, just that failure of communication of what actually needs to be done. So they know how to get there versus them trying to figure it out for themselves. Uh, what I like about that leadership under fire is, you know, you got those awesome people, you're hanging out with them, and you know, I'm gathering as much information as I can while I'm there because it's, it's, it's a real pool of talent that comes together. Troy, thank you so much for being on today and taking the time to uh, explain all of this to our listeners. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate it. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF. 
More at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit LeadershipUnderFire.com.